0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, now that Pierre Polyev is the new Conservative Party leader in Canada, what could his leadership mean for the future of the party and the country? We'll talk about it. What is a bivalent vaccine and why should we be taking them? Dr. Don Bodish will join us to talk about that. And economists say Canada's real problem is not job losses. It's actually the rush of Canadians retiring. What's this mean for the future of our economy? It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Federal politics still dominates uh, what's going on in this country right now. Uh, well, yesterday, of course, new conservative leader Pierre Poilievre addressed his caucus uh, for the first time since winning the leadership of the party in a landslide victory this past weekend. He used his inaugural speech to issue a challenge to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who's currently meeting with his caucus ahead of the House of Commons, which is resuming next week, Here's a little bit of what Mr. Polyev had to say.
1: If you really understand the suffering of Canadians, Mr. Prime Minister, if you understand that people can't gas their cars, feed their families, or afford homes for themselves, if you really care, commit today that there will be no new tax increases on workers and on seniors. None. <laughs>
0: Lots of reaction to uh, the last 48 hours or so with what's going on in the political landscape, including an interesting op-ed piece that was in The Conversation. You can see it on the conversation.com webpage. Uh And it's uh, entitled uh, What Pierre Polyev's Leadership Means for the Future of the Conservative Party. Uh, the author is Sam Routley. Sam, of course, is a PhD student of political science at Western University. And he joins us on the program to talk about the essay and uh, and his thoughts about uh, what's happening on the political landscape. Sam, good to have you back with us today. Yeah. Good morning, Bill. Uh, talk to us about your uh, perspective of, of what you've seen over the last 48 hours or so, with with the victory and 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 the way that people have responded to that.
2: Yeah, sure. Well, I think we were all expecting a, a Polyev win on Saturday, uh, regardless of what that looked like. But I think what was still surprising was was the scope of it. That that if you don't if you don't factor in the points breakdown, you won about you know over 70 percent of, of the vote. Uh, you know, winning. 330 out of uh, 338 ranks in canada um and i think it seems to suggest that 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 the party's not as as united that sorry it's not as disunited as it as it used to be or at least not as much as it's perceived to be um that that through his ability to run this this pretty impeccable campaign you know whether it was his the way he could fundraise or the way he could uh, Bringing new members to the party, but also his his appeal, right? The the message he was trying to get across of of uh, of addressing these economic anxieties and, and also voicing this kind of populist um, discontent against against what he calls gatekeepers. I think not only appealed to to kind of all conservatives, but but seemed to kind of generate this this momentum, you know, for the party that that you know he might you know sustain in the coming months, the coming years.
0: Let me ask you, and I don't want to break down the numbers, because as you say, you can twist numbers around any way you want. It was a decisive victory. That's the mm-hmm. takeaway here. Uh, but uh, they sold, they tell us anyway, about 675,000 new memberships uh, during the, the, the length of this campaign. Uh, and that's all the delegates, not just Mr. Polyev. Uh But a lot of them didn't vote. Now, I know that's not unusual in Canadian voting politics or anything. I mean, you never get 100% compliance with these sorts of things. But it, it had a couple of pundits wondering, Sam, you know, were those Patrick Brown supporters? Were those uh, Charest supporters? Were they people that just get, gave up? Or were they people that figured, hey, I'm supporting Paul Yevvie's going to win, so they don't need my vote? Uh, probably a combination of all of them. But you, you, I, I wonder about the Brown element to this. And and uh, he's he's pretty much the black sheep of the Conservative Party, I guess, in so many different ways. But he sold a lot of memberships, too. And when he got booted out of the race, I just wondered what kind of an impact that had.
2: yeah yeah, i think you're right there it's it's definitely you know in 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 leadership races like this but also in general elections it's it can be quite a challenge to get to to get people to kind of make that final act of voting and i mean the Polyev campaign did that quite well in terms of you know providing avenues for voting making it an easy process for their supporters i mean you had examples where at, at the rallies, you, you, you would get invited to the rally and the campaign would kind of provide you this, this spot to vote, making it a very easy process for you. But I think to get to Patrick Brown, I mean, he his campaign kind of at towards the start of the race kind of had this similar organizational competency, right? That, that if he had stayed in the race, I think you could have expected that just as that Polyev's team was able to... to Recruit a large group of people and, and mobilize them. I think I think Brown would have done the same. And and what it seemed to have done is 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 dampen the 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 success of this kind of more centrist challenge. That that the, what the strategy was, it seemed like, was that Chiray and Brown were kind of been this this alliance where while mm-hmm. Chiray was kind of the leader, of, you know, Brown would very much kind of provide that organization. I think Brown's removal from the race kind of really. Compromise that whole strategy and, and definitely
0: contributed to to Polyev's uh, you know massive win. Is this the death knell for the progressive conservative movements? Uh, the 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 Brian Mulroney's the Jean Charest's, uh, the the the, the hangers-on, I guess, from the past, uh, whom many of whom were not crazy about the uh, the amalgamation between uh, you know the Reform Party and 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 the Progressive Conservative Party. But uh, it is what it is, and uh, I guess there have been some efforts to try to. To regain some of that progressive element to this too, uh, but not so much now. I mean, with this vote and the decisive nature of this vote, uh, is it pretty clear right now that, the, that that element of the party has got well little influence, if any?
2: Yeah, I mean, with given given the fact that that parties and Canadian politics generally is right leader centric. You know, there'll always be these these. Uh, there'll always be a bit of an adjustment in any party. There'll always be a set of Voices within a party that that disagree with the leader or disagree with the leader's approach and will kind of leave, uh, make their exit. Uh, you know, you could you could look back, for example, when when Stephen Harper uh, took over the leadership, there was this a very similar conversation that, that he was kind of seen as a much more ideological figure, and, and that the more moderate uh, voices from the old PC party were were very much against him. And I think ultimately these 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 predictions at that time that you would see a massive turn away or a massive departure from the Harper-led uh, conservatives were, were premature. And I think it's the same here. Um, uh the scope of his victory shows that, that, that we're not looking at a party that's super divided in the sense that um, the conversations that we've been having about this kind of breakaway uh, centrist conservative movement. I, I, I just simply, I don't think it's large enough to, to have any, uh, electoral uh, success, and and I think part of that has to do with the fact that while Polyev's kind of taken on this this populist skin, right? It's a very ideologically conscious and and driven conservatism. I think at the end of the day, it's pretty conventional and, and broad in the sense that that perhaps even the moderate conservatives might not necessarily, you know, like it dispositionally, right? That they might have their reservations. I think that there's a set of of policy commitments in there that they can that they can get behind
0: what i find interesting and i actually mentioned this in my commentary on chml this morning uh there there are going to be disenchanted conservatives as you say, there always are going to be about you know leadership change and things of this nature and and those middle conservatives those progressive conservatives i'm sure are not crazy about the outcome of this vote but as i mentioned this morning the same thing's happening in the other side of the aisle uh, there are a lot of people in the Liberal Party right now, some of them are elected members, that aren't crazy about the way that, uh, that Justin Trudeau has moved them very far to the left, uh, You know, to the point of actually having an alliance sort of with the NDP. And it's it's leaving a great big gap there. I know you study this stuff extensively, Sam. Uh, there's a great big gap here in, in the middle here in politics with uh, some disenchanted conservatives, some disenchanted liberals wondering that where's the middle ground here, that you know, which w- used to be the battleground for, for who is going to win that election.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like uh, a lot of quality of success can be attributed to this this, this broader state of, of dissatisfaction with the incumbent government. You know, I, I think that since 2015, there's been a series of, of scandals and, and limitations and uh, unmet promises uh, that have kind of compromised Trudeau's own personal integrity and also kind of presented a government that's, that's tired... And to some degree complacent, um, but more importantly, a government that seems unable to to address these these increasingly important economic anxieties, you know, pocketbook issues related to to affordability, to housing, to inflation, for example. And I think the perception is amongst many Canadians and amongst you know it seems some members of the Liberal caucus is that the party has kind of removed itself from this from this primary issue. That that Canadians first and foremost, you know, care about their pocketbooks, and, and the way that the party um, finds success in the future is by is by returning to that to that area by by communicating to to Canadians that not only are they properly addressing those issues, but that they're the best to do it. You know that the that the conservative the the alternative that the conservatives are proposing is is perhaps inferior, and so um, the government ought to stay in place.
0: It's it's going to be interesting though. Uh, even the speech that he gave his acceptance speech uh, on Saturday uh, was was absent of some of the well more radical things he talked about about firing the the governor of the Bank of Canada, uh, you know replacing our financial system with cryptocurrency and things of this nature. Uh, I, I'm wondering if he's decided you know to back away from some of that uh, the the more what some people would consider to be radical ideas. Uh, and, and let's face it, you're not going to tame inflation by moving to cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot more that has to be done here. And uh, he's at some point, I guess, going to have to understand or, or realize or acknowledge uh, that this is not a Canada-only crisis. I mean, the, the whole world is going through an inflation problem here, uh, which is not to say that, you know, our government can't do something to try to mitigate the impact of it. And, you know, that, that's where the, I guess, the ru- the rubber's going to meet the road here. What's your plan and what are you going to do for Canadians? Uh, the the plus side, I guess, for Mr. Ev at this stage, Sam, he's got time here. I don't think there's going to be an election anytime soon. Some people are saying maybe uh, early next year. I, I, I would doubt that uh, as long as the NDP, a liberal coalition holds up. And I guess as long as they deliver the dental care program, that's probably going to happen. But he's going to have some time here to get used to this and maybe for Canadians to get used to him.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the the conversation when he sort of emerged on the scene was that he was kind of coming from this from the right, that he was taking these these elements of of the fringe, the the, the sort of uh, groups and and positions that that had gone to the People's Party pre- prior, and kind of brought that into the mainstream Conservative Party. But I think, given given the scope of that win, it demonstrates that Polly has appeal and and the sort of conservatives that he's that that he uh, he has the support of is, is a much broader is a, is, a, is much broader. Uh, and it seems like even though perhaps he won the leadership or at least he he got into the position he was on kind of appealing to these to these kind of red meat issues right that that kind of get conservatives mobilized right that that they care about like like we've mentioned there around the the convoy and, and bitcoin and the world economic forum for example if if his victory speech on saturday and his caucus speech on monday is any indication it it, it suggests that he's kind of moving away from this that he's that he's Trying to locate the party and trying to locate his message, his policy agenda, um, in this much more generic um, sense of of the you know economic issues, affordability issues that that are impacting a lot of Canadians, you know, including ones that are not necessarily that conservative. And rather than arguing, rather than trying to persuade them of the of the validity of of conservative principles, instead you know making the case that the conservatives have the best. Uh, set of policies, the best approach to to address those problems. That that, like I mentioned, um, the current government
0: seems seems incapable of doing. Let me ask you the same question I asked uh, one of our, our political science professors yesterday. Uh, the decisions he's going to make over the next little while, I think, are going to be very telling. He's, he's going to announce his, 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 basically his shadow cabinet, who's going to be the critics in, in various capacities. Does he embrace the, the less than Lewis's and, and some of the more radical types here, or does he go more mainstream? Who's who's going to be on his team? No, that's
2: certainly an important question. And, and and while while the scope of the victory was large, it seems like these these deep divisions in the conservative party, especially around social policy, for example, are still there. Yeah. And you're going to see a, a liberal party that that's, that like they've done in the past, is is very keen to exploit them. Um, I think Paulie strategy here. Um, will, will be kind of try to be the unifier in the sense of of trying to to make the case to conservatives that that despite these kind of divisions on on what he would consider to be minor issues, right? That there's this, there's there's more. There are more important things, right? There, there's more important things that that conservatives agree upon um and that there's this kind of common mission right that 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 their desire to to you know remove the current government and and put in place policies related to you know you could say free markets individual freedom you know low government is is something that they can kind of put aside those those differences uh for this for this common goal but it will definitely be a challenge i mean especially once once you could imagine a probably have conservative getting government getting into power and and these interests that that kind of care about or or, or looking to advance changes to these controversial issues are, are now interested in in seeing if if the government will, will do anything about them so it's 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 a it's a it's kind of this universal part of the conservative party it's it's a it's a perpetual division that will that the be that will always be around and and leaders will always have to manage
0: yeah, and the strategists are in the back rooms in Ottawa right now on both sides, of course, developing uh, the, the the talking points on all this. It's going to be a very combative session, I guess, when they get back to uh, the House of Commons. Uh, thought-provoking piece, as always, Sam. Thanks so much for writing it, first of all, and uh, thanks for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Take care. Sam Routley, PhD student of political science at Western University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I know we're getting all... Uh, pandemic uh, fatigued and everything, and we're concerned about uh, what's going to be happening going forward, but uh, Omicron's still out there, and uh, the numbers indicate that the pandemic is still on. Well, to that end, uh, the first shipment of Omicron targeted COVID-19 vaccines to arrive in the province are all ready to go into people's arms. Global Sandy Salerno has some details.
3: The Omicron-specific vaccine is the one from Moderna that was recently approved by Health Canada. Those who will be able to get it first are residents considered the most vulnerable, as long as it's been six months since their last dose. That includes people age 70 and older, long-term care residents, health care workers, Indigenous people, individuals 12 and older who are immunocompromised, and pregnant people. The booking system is open, and there are same-day appointments right now for the this priority group. Everyone else 18 and older will have to wait a bit until September the 26th to get their booster, but the province says they can start booking those appointments now if they want to for planning purposes. Sandy Salerno, Global News.
0: So let's uh, figure out exactly what is going on and why it's happening. And uh, to, for that, uh, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program, Dr. Don Bodish, She was a tenured professor of pathology and molecular medicine at McMaster University and uh, Canada Research Chair in Aging and Immunity with the DeGroot Institute for Infectious Disease Research. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today.
3: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: I, I guess the, the obvious question, maybe the elementary question is here, uh, why this vaccine and why now? Uh, you know, uh, A lot of people are saying, look, I got my four shots. I should be good here. What's the concern at this point?
3: Yeah, so what we need to do is we have to start moving away from thinking of the number of shots we have to how recently we've had them. What we're learning, especially in the context of Omicron, is that The best protection from an Omicron infection is how recently you've had a shot. And we know that once people hit that six month mark, they're not really protected from getting a symptomatic infection, meaning getting sick, although they are really well protected from death and dying. So all the predictions uh, that we have right now state that with the reduction of masking, with the return of in-person school, with the very high rates of infections in in young people, uh, kids in the 20 somethings, there's gonna be a big spike. And I think maybe Many of your listeners would be surprised to know that actually hospitalization and deaths this year were higher than in the pre-vaccine era. And that's because people are complacent. They feel that maybe even two doses is protecting them. And it's because this is such an infectious virus that is just finding all those vulnerable people who might uh, not have been exposed to the virus prior. So this vaccine is a really important new tool for us. It's bivalent, which means that half of it is the original vaccine, and half of it is for one of the Omicron variants. Now, unfortunately, the Omicron isn't a perfect match to the one that's uh, circulating now, but all the early evidence suggests that it will provide a bit more protection from those symptomatic infections. And by timing it right at the start of a wave, the hope is that we can minimize both the total number of people who are infected, but also any of the vulnerable people who might end up in the hospital or getting really ill.
0: Well, there's another element to this too. I'm I'm glad you had some time to talk to us about this because the Ontario Science Table, uh, I I know they got their walking papers from the government a little while ago, but they they did issue another release just the other day, uh, asking the government, uh, the provincial government that is, uh, to develop some sort of a strategy for, for long COVID because they're finding more and more cases of adults and children. Uh, that are dealing with long COVID right now. And that doesn't just mean you get a runny nose for a long time. That can be some pretty serious consequences, can't there?
3: Absolutely. So long COVID is devastating. It hits younger people, people who are healthy, often people with no comorbidities. And it's difficult to diagnose because no two people are the same, and it can involve a lot of different body sims, uh, sim, uh, parts of your body. So, for example, some people have the fatigue, some people have lung issues, some people have heart attacks or strokes as a consequence. And we know that long COVID is proportional to how sick you get. So if you get really sick you're likely to get long COVID and if you get less sick you're less likely although it can still happen so one of the reasons having a vaccine a recent vaccine one within the last six months is so helpful is because it reduces the severity of that illness will make you less sick and then thereby reducing your chance of long COVID. So even if you're not afraid of, you know, a week or two of maybe being sick or a little bit of being off work, I think there's a lot of good reasons to get yourself vaccinated to prevent this really tragic um, syndrome that can happen and really impact people's lives.
0: Now, with this new variant, uh, not the variant of the pandemic, but I mean of the the, the vaccine itself, the the bivalent, as you mentioned, uh, what about the existing vaccines? I mean, uh, as as you say, I think we're getting a little complacent because uh, vaccine numbers have fallen off right now. And I I know that the government's very upset about the fact that uh, they've actually had to get rid of some of the stuff in their stockpile because it's outdated now.
3: Yes, we came out strong. Canadians went, they got their two doses. We had one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. Most European countries had updated their vaccine mandates and many of their travel requirements to require three doses when Omicron came. And some countries say you have to have a vaccine within the last six months to be able to access services or travel or whatever. For, I'm sure, political reasons, because it certainly wasn't scientific, we didn't really push those third doses. And so now we're in this terrible situation where we're wasting this valuable resource. Um, I think it makes absolute sense to move to the bivalent vaccine um, that is going to provide us some better protection. But what a tragedy that uh, Canadians didn't take up this offer. And this helps explain why hospitalization and deaths in 2022 have been higher even than 2021.
0: You used the term uh, big spike a few minutes ago. Uh, and again, I, I, I know people are tired of talking about pandemic. They're tired of talking about the implications. Uh, but uh, just about all the officials, and Dr. Kier Moore, the Ontario uh, public health uh, official, uh, chief doctor of the province right now, even reiterated that yesterday, that, uh, that it's, it's, this could be a pretty rough fall.
3: Yeah, it's looking it's looking like it's going to be a bit rough. It's what's fascinating too is we were sort of uh the last the first omicron wave in sort of July and August came earlier than expected. The predictions were that it would come a little bit later. Um and in some countries, especially the European countries whose waves always come a little bit before ours, they had their current omicron wave leave and a new variant come in. And in Canada, and to a certain degree, the US, it doesn't look like it's a new variant that's gonna cause this new wave. It's the change in our behaviors. So the fact that we're going back to schools without masking, allowing young people to socialize, getting those back, we're not requiring people to stay off work. If they're sick, you know, you can wear a mask and go out. These, It's the behaviors that's going to lead to this next wave. And depending if you're a glass half full or glass half empty, this is either good news or bad news. It's good news because we can change those behaviors. We can make good choices. We can uh, wear masks to work. We can do all these things. It's bad news because without guidance, we know that people don't make those decisions.
0: Uh, I know we're just about out of time, but we've, especially in the first couple of waves, I always kind of looked to Australia since they have reverse weather patterns than we do. I mean, they've already mm-hmm. gone through their winter uh, and they did have that spike as well. As a matter of fact, it was exacerbated by the fact that they also had a spike in flu. Uh, So here's hoping that doesn't happen here, but that's a possibility, if not a probability. So we we need to be diligent still. Doctor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for this. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Dr. Don Bodish. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, Canada's unemployment rate was 5.4% in August. That's ticking up for the first time in seven months as the economy, they say, lost 40,000 jobs. We're going in the wrong direction here, folks. Uh, Wages are also up 5.4% compared with last year. Uh, BMO senior economist Sal Gutierrez says it's going to make the Bank of Canada a little bit nervous as it tries to quell inflation. So I think that will make the Bank of Canada
2: nervous about the inflation outlook, at least enough that we will see another rate increase at the end of October, probably uh, of about 50 basis points.
0: that, the kind of news you probably wanted to hear. Look, there's a lot of stuff at play here, though. I mean, when you hear about employment numbers and jobs, uh, those are numbers. But we have to look at the uh, the facts behind the numbers. And uh, an interesting report came out the other day that talked about this uh, that says that the real problem is the rush to retire. That's what's causing an awful lot of the, the employment situations and the crises that we, many companies are facing these days. Joining us to talk about this is David McDonald. David, of course, is a senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Uh, David, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Why are we leaving the, the workforce uh, in, in such large numbers now?
1: Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is to break down these retirements and look at who is leaving the workforce. I mean, is this sort of broad based or is it much more specific? And therefore, what are the reasons for it? Um, what's pretty clear in this retirement boom, you know, there's an extra 70,000 people, over 70,000 people uh, retiring in the August numbers compared to a year previous. Um, and so most of that is interestingly in education services, This is teachers. Uh, You know, the top categories are teachers, professional services, which is, you know, lawyers and accountants, construction, and the fourth highest is healthcare. And so for two of these four areas, I mean, these are sort of frontline workers and their retirements or their excess retirements over and above what we saw uh, in 2021. Is likely due to burnout um so this has been very difficult years for some frontline workers and uh they're going you know they're retiring and so you know the shortage of skilled workers in these areas is pretty clear particularly if you're trying to get uh into an emergency room or trying to get uh, an operation booked i mean there's certainly a shortage of skilled nurses part of the problem is they're retiring uh because they don't want to deal with the fact that they don't get vacation and they don't get pay um, and on the education front, um, you know, it's been a tough two years from teaching at home and teaching kids with masks on and so on. Uh, and we're seeing, you know, a big additional retirement in the, in the teaching profession. Interestingly, this is very concentrated in Ontario. Uh, and so, you know, the excess retirements in Ontario, of that 70,000 sort of excess retirements, 50 of them is, is, is in Ontario. So this is an Ontario-specific teachers and nurses story um that we're seeing that we're going to live with for some time because you've got to backfill these positions but it takes
0: time for people to get trained up into uh you know filling these roles but we can't really see we didn't see this coming did we david i mean we from the beginning days of the pandemic you know we were told uh, by people in those professions that, look at this is this is just getting to be too much the pressure the physical pressure the mental pressure etc and and i don't know that that you know the institutions the, the the boards of education the governments or whatever uh, did everything they could to try to mitigate that uh, as as you say especially in the healthcare profession uh you know the legislation that they introduced was rather onerous and that only exacerbated the situation for many of them so i i can understand why they just say look at i'm out of here that's it yeah
1: um and so you know even if we go back to pre-pandemic i mean these these levels of retirement are are well above what we would normally see in in august you know in august data in 2019. um you know it's not that it's not that healthcare was was well staffed prior to the pandemic i mean this is something where we were living on a bit of a knife's edge. we had just enough people to meet the demand as it existed pre-pandemic uh, not as it existed during a pandemic. And so there just wasn't the kind of expansion capacity you might expect. And so as a result, the way, the way you expand when you don't have extra people is people work harder. Uh, you cancel vacation, you force people to work more shifts, um, you, you work them much harder. And as people, uh, you know, and, and, and largely uh, nurses and teachers were willing to do that. They were willing to step up and work hard. This was their profession. This was their calling. We were asking them. In difficult situations, to work harder, and they did it. Uh, but there's a limit, uh, and that limit was clearly reached uh, it, at the start of this year, um, where you, you you start to see this this uh, upward swing in retirements, uh, and really, you know, hit its stride in about April of this year, where you start to see this very high level of seventy thousand, you know, retire additional retirements over and above the baseline uh, over the previous year. Um, and, you know, there's only so long that, that that you can put people in a difficult situation like this. Um, in addition to the fact that there's going to be very, and this is, you know, again, as I'm saying, this is Ontario specific. Um, there are going to be very difficult negotiations with the teachers over the course of this fall, um, as well as with the nurses, who's, uh, you know, the amount uh, of increase that they can see in their paychecks have been capped well below the rate of inflation. And so when it comes to just keeping pace with Uh, much less offsetting, you know, these burnout rates, it's going to be a very difficult time. Um, And the trouble is once folks retire, you know, experienced nurses retire, it's tough to get them back. Um, You know, it's, it's one thing, you know, we certainly want to train up new nurses and get nurses into the profession. Uh, But look, it takes time to get them up to the level where they can be in an operating room and be working there efficiently or running an ER. Um, You know, when you get these most experienced nurses retiring, you've got a real problem where you just can't run these operations um, and so, I mean, you know, we're, we're seeing it now. It's the result of two years. Of the, the You know, we, we finally relaxed in a sense. And I think, you know, nurses and teachers have relaxed in a sense and, and have reevaluated to say, uh, you know, look, maybe this isn't the profession I want to be in. It's been a very difficult two years and maybe I'm going to leave. Uh, and that puts us all worse off in terms of trying to rely on these critical services.
0: Well, and there it's, I remember it was last week, I guess, the, the health minister, Sylvia Jones, was talking about some incentives, and they talked about, you know, they're going to hire new nurses, et cetera, et cetera, and also offer incentives for people had, to, who had left the profession to come back in, uh, which begs the question, I guess, at that point, David, is why? What would the incentive be? I mean, are they going to go right back into the same circumstances in which they were in before, which, which you know, forced them to quote co- co- in the first place? I mean, they've got to think long-term here and say, okay, what's causing this? And I don't know that they've addressed that yet.
1: I mean money is part of the problem uh there's no doubt about seeing you know inflation at eight percent and your pay going up at zero percent or two percent or something like that that's part of the problem uh part of the problem as well is uh is scheduling the ability to take time off uh the working environment making sure that there are actually enough nurses to deal with the the you know the stresses that folks are under I mean, part of the problem with this snowballing situation is you get the retirement of very skilled nurses that may, you know, some of them may come back, but they're certainly not going to come back in in the numbers that they're retiring in with, with these types of incentives. Um, but the folks that are left get pushed even harder. And so we saw this over the course of the summer in another measure in the labor force survey, which was the amount of overtime that's being put in here. Uh, and there's substantial amounts of overtime well Uh, Well above what you would normally see in the healthcare sector, and that's because folks are being pushed to you know to work a lot more over time, and that encourages more burnout. So you end up with this snowballing situation that uh, results in much lower levels of care, shutting down emergency rooms, shutting down uh, surgeries, for instance, Uh, and it becomes a you know becomes a real big issue, uh, which I think is why you know these these shutdowns in critical healthcare services that really started in the spring but got a lot worse over the summer. This is not a problem that's going away, and despite the fact that it's great that we're hiring new nurses into the profession, um, we gotta we gotta retain them. I mean, this is the other problem too. You don't want to hire people in, you know, on a bonus, and they you know they work there for a year and then decide, well, geez, this isn't this isn't a great working environment. I can't take vacation. I get terrible shifts. There's not enough people, so it's very stressful. Uh, maybe I'm going to go on uh, use my skills elsewhere outside of say the hospital system, or completely shift uh, into other professions that maybe aren't as stressful where, uh, you know, maybe the pay is better.
0: What's, uh, what's the impact on skilled trades? You know, which I, I don't want people to think that this is exclusively an education and healthcare problem. It's it's bleeding into other areas too, I would think.
1: Yeah. So the other big areas of retirement are uh, the professional scientific services. And so this is, um, you know, accountants, lawyers, that sort of thing. Um, uh, big retirements in the construction trade, interestingly. And also retail to some degree, um, and so these are kind of the next big categories after uh, you know the real focus on uh, on education service, particularly in the August data. Uh, and so you know it 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 may well be that um, you know some of these construction workers are retiring a bit above the baseline as well. Um, and so you know this actually has been um, you know the con- construction industry has been a place where there's been a lot of growth over the past couple of years with home construction um, in particular. Uh, And so, you know, there's been been a big boom in this area. Now, you know, it's one of the big risks of rising interest rates is that this area in particular construction uh, and the real real estate industry more broadly um, will get hit. I mean, this is really on the front lines of interest rate sensitive sectors is you don't build as many houses and you don't sell as many houses when when prices are dropping because uh, mortgage rates are going up. Um, Now, in terms of, you know, where we saw the contraction in employment um in this latest labor force survey it was actually in the education sector that's where we're seeing less employment um which is somewhat in line with the you know with the the retirement picture although some of it has to do with some of the seasonal adjustment you know we haven't seen big losses yet in the real estate industry in the construction of new homes industry uh the manufacturing of of durables in particular i mean these are areas where you you'd start to see the the impact of rising interest rates on the labor market—we haven't really seen that yet—but uh, we certainly are seeing fewer people who are employable being employed, and that's resulting in a, in a higher unemployment rate. That uh, uh, you know that we've seen this month, the, the last two months, you know, have been pretty steady at 4.9%. But part of the part of the issue why they're
0: staying steady is fewer people are looking for work, which isn't really the way you want to keep an unemployment rate low. No, but it just about any government you want to listen to these days is saying we're going to build more housing. You know, all the municipal elections going on in Ontario right now, and of course, the federal and provincial governments are saying that too. Uh, good luck trying to get skilled tradespeople to build them, uh, you know, framers, carpenters, electricians, things like that. I mean, ask anybody who's tried to even get some home improvement work done. Uh, you know, this past summer, a friend of mine in July here tried to get somebody to do his roof. He said, We're booking for November now, maybe. Because uh, there's just not enough of them, and and you know they're, these guys are working their tails off, and as you say, some of them are finally packing it in, saying I can't do this anymore. So th- 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 this is getting into be a, a very trying situation, which I guess David is really uh, another factor and going to slow down an economic recovery. All, you know, the, 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 there's got to be some some compassion here. I think you know for these people to say let's let's make it more attractive for them to stay, and let's make it uh, more amenable for them to stay, and uh, I don't know that they've done that yet.
1: Yeah, certainly on the construction front, um, you know, this has been a booming industry. And we're so we're not seeing declines in employment that might be related to to slowdowns in new home construction. Um, you know, this is part of the issue, is that uh the Bank of Canada may have to go a lot higher. I mean, and this is this is the point of in interest, increased interest rates is to take interest rate sensitive sectors like the construction sector, uh, and drive up drive down employment in those sectors. That's the point, right? The point is to take these interest rate sensitive sectors, decrease, you know, these kind of lineups that people are seeing to do home renovation, roofing, and so on, uh, because people think, holy cow, the price of my house is plummeting. Uh, Maybe I don't, you know, maybe I don't want to do that renovation, because it's not going to increase the value of my house. Uh, I'll cancel. Um, And so at present, we're not seeing a lot of that. And so what that might mean is much higher interest rates to get to that level where we would start to see decreases in prices in that area. And therefore, on average, decrease in inflation. Um, You know, we're already out now of the range uh, that the Bank of Canada thinks is neutral in terms of its interest rate setting. You know, it thought that the top end of that range was three percent. We're now at three point two five. You know, if we start to go into the four and five percent range, uh, it is certainly possible to to get you know, house prices down enough and people's interest down enough that people just cancel these renovations, cancel that roofing job, you know, cancel uh, you know, the purchase of big appliances, for instance, uh, that would go into those renovations. And therefore, you start to get decreasing inflation. Um, but you can see the trouble here is that very high interest rates mean mean a recession, in essence. Uh, that's not what anybody wants, not what the bank wants. But, uh, you know, that that is all, Well, historically speaking, that's always how the Bank of Canada tools work is you just keep increasing them until you get increasing interest rates, that is, until you get a recession. Uh, And then you get inflation down, but a lot of people lose their jobs in the process.
0: Uh, One other thing I wanted to mention, I just got an email from uh, one of our listeners as we were going through this. uh, Actually, an acquaintance of mine who's in the trucking industry and saying, please talk about how this is being impacted. Uh, They can't get truck drivers. And we've talked about supply chain issues and concerns for the last uh, few months now. Uh, if you can't get the stuff from point A to point B, we've got a problem here, and 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 that's an ongoing problem as well. But when you look at the people that, as he tells me, are leaving that industry,
1: yeah, I mean, in terms of what's interesting is that in terms of the last GDP, round of GDP data, uh, what was what really drove GDP data forward, like the the GDP growth forward, was was businesses actually loading up on inventory. So uh, it's, it's some indication that some of these supply chain issues where you just can't get stuff off boats, you can't get stuff from boats to warehouses, you can't get stuff from warehouses to stores, that does seem to be clearing up to some degree. And in part, it's due to the fact that uh, consumers over the course of this sort of inflationary period have been switching their money out of goods and towards services. So instead of buying um, you know, a new dishwasher, you go on vacation. And that's because you can go on vacation now because a lot of the uh, COVID restrictions have lifted. Mm-hmm. And so it seems that now there's less demand for goods and there is there is some movement of goods. There are certainly early indications. And frankly, without these business inventory top ups, uh, the GDP growth would have been negative in the last quarter. And so this is one of the things sort of keeping economic growth going or certainly in the last quarter was businesses have managed to sort of work through some of these issues and get get the goods to where they need to when they're building up their inventories um, it, because some of these supply chain issues have resolved themselves, but also because consumers are demanding less goods and they're
0: putting more money into services. Uh, it's a fascinating picture, and I think it's uh, so important to have this as part of the conversation about what's going to be happening going forward. And uh, you have to, I guess, uh, juxtapose this against some of the policies we've heard. Well, the Liberals announcing one federally as we speak, I guess, out in uh, New Brunswick. Uh, and see just whether or not these proposals are going to address some of these problems. David, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for this today. Thanks for having me. David McDonald, Senior Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Uh, and I know I know, I already got a couple of emails, well, but the immigration policies, yeah, but that's not going to fill it right away. That, that takes time, as David mentioned. Uh, you know, We want to get as many immigrants as we possibly can in here to help with this problem. Uh, but they have to be trained uh, in whatever profession and, or, or in some cases uh, have to go through qualification processes uh, depending on which profession it's in too. So it's, it's, it's not the quick fix, but it's going to be part of the,